0: I'm Bridget Stomberg, and I'm Lisa D. Simone, and this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the deductibility of executive compensation. Internal Revenue Code Section 162m
1: governs the deductibility of executive compensation. Starting in 1993, publicly traded companies could secure a tax deduction for all executive compensation that was based on company performance, plus another $1 million. That all changed with the passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017, when Congress limited the entire deduction to $1 million annually for each covered executive. Today's episode discusses the history of 162M and highlights academic evidence on the ability of tax policy to influence executive compensation. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. Today, we are talking about a fairly popular topic, executive compensation. Mm -hmm. More specifically, the tax treatment of executive compensation to the firm.
0: Yes, we talked at length about the tax treatment of executive compensation, in particular stock options, on a prior episode. And the high-level takeaway from that discussion was that executives are generally taxed on all of their compensation. Wages, salary, options, stock, deferred compensation. bonuses, expensive security details. All the things. Yes, you name it, and with very limited exceptions, executives, like any other company employee, pay tax on their compensation.
1: And thank goodness, because that is logical and consistent with some general tenets of the
0: tax law in the US. I love it when you talk general tenants of the tax law. I don't think
1: I've ever said that phrase before, so. Well, it works. Good, I like it. So we like to tax individuals when they have what we call an accession to wealth when they become better off economically as the result of some transaction. And Congress likes to cast a wide net when it comes to what is considered taxable income. Good old code section 61 says gross income includes all income from whatever source derived, including compensation for services. I don't know why I went British there, but I did. I don't know
0: either, but it's also working for you. Perhaps not too surprisingly, Congress casts a net that is not so wide when it comes to tax deductions. So whereas any item of income is taxable unless Congress says it's not, pretty much nothing is deductible unless Congress says it is. And when it comes to businesses, the mother of all code sections is section 162, which allows a deduction for ordinary and necessary expenses paid or incurred to carry on a trade or a business, including a quote, reasonable allowance for salaries or other compensation. And now you know I love it when you
1: talk in quotes. I do. So what does, quote, reasonable mean when it comes to executive compensation?
0: Well, by enacting Code Section 162M, Congress essentially decided reasonable meant $1 million, or as Austin Powers calls it, $1 million. Yeah, baby. I don't think I've ever heard you say that phrase before. Yes. (laughs) The provision, which became effective in 1993, was meant to coordinate with new executive compensation disclosure rules issued by the Securities Exchange Commission to improve governance and transparency of executive comp at public companies. The provision was intended to address concerns that executives were setting their own excessive pay with no shareholder input. So Congress disallowed a corporation's deduction for compensation to executives in excess of $1 million per year, with some exceptions.
1: Absolutely, because if I learned nothing else from Jesse Boyles, my tax professor at the University of Florida, code sections like to start with a general rule, followed by exceptions to the rule, and if you're really lucky, exceptions to the exception. Mm-hmm. The old 162M had exceptions for privately held corporations compensation paid to anyone other than the top five officers, performance-based compensation, and commissions. So let's look at each of those exceptions in turn.
0: Deal. The first exception for privately held corporations makes sense only because the tax laws were trying to conform to a SEC disclosure requirement for publicly traded companies. Otherwise, it seems to me we should generally not have a different set of tax rules for private versus public companies. Second, the decision to
1: restrict the applicability of the law to the top five executive officers was also an artifact of the overlap with SEC disclosure rules. When enacted, 162M applied to the CEO plus the four highest paid officers other than the CEO whose compensation was required to be disclosed under SEC rules.
0: The last exceptions were for qualified performance-based pay and commissions. To be qualified, the compensation had to be linked to non-discretionary, objective performance goals determined by an independent compensation committee, disclosed to shareholders, and approved by a majority shareholder vote. Before paying the compensation, the independent committee had to certify that these performance goals were indeed met. And you just
1: listed off a lot of
0: hoops to jump through? Yep. And they seem pretty closely tied to the
1: objectives of trying to make executive pay based on company performance and also
0: subject to shareholder approval. Yep, I agree. Now, one thing to emphasize is that a company was not required to jump through these hoops. It could pay the CEO $1 billion for doing absolutely nothing if it wanted to. Congress couldn't do anything to prevent that. All Congress could do was take away the associated tax benefit of compensation above and beyond $1 million that did not meet those hoops for the performance-based exception.
1: Side note, if any company is looking for a CEO to do nothing for $1 billion a year, I am available. As am I. Contact us. We'll, we'll work. We'll both work for the we'll 1000000000 billion. We'll split it. That's what I'm yeah. saying. We, we're completely reasonable human beings here. Come on. So you're exactly right. Companies could have continued to pay executives as much as they wanted to. And we have evidence that some companies did, in fact, forego tax benefits by paying their executives non-deductible compensation. In a 2005 study, Balsam and Yin estimate that as many as 40% of observations that they examined between 1994 and 1998 showed evidence of forfeiting tax benefits on executive compensation.
0: But most companies realized that using stock as performance compensation was a way to offer executives potentially exorbitant amounts of compensation that was also fully deductible to the corporation because it could be considered performance-based if it had shareholder approval.
1: In the early 90s, stock compensation made up just under 30% of total executive comp. That percentage rose steadily and sharply during the tech boom of the 90s and has been as much as 60% of executive compensation in recent years.
0: As part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed in 2017, Congress decided enough was enough, stating that the shift to stock options and other types of performance-based pay had led to myopic behavior and perverse consequences Congress removed the performance-based pay exception under 162M. And what this effectively did was cap the annual deduction for executive pay at $1 million per executive. Okay. Hold on a second. Yeah. In
1: 1993, we were worried that executive pay was too large and not performance-based. Yeah. So we implemented a performance-based requirement for deductions over $1 million. Yes. Then in 2017, we were worried that executive pay was too large because it was Mm performance-based. So we took away the performance-based exception.
0: Yeah, I'm not really sure why you're saying we here because we, as in you and me, had nothing to do with this. True. Yes, you're exactly right, though. Congress reasoned that the tax benefits of performance-based pay led to an overemphasis on it in executive compensation contracts and basically reversed their entire thinking behind all of this And decided to remove the performance pay exceptions, thinking that would lead to a shift back to salaries. Let's find out if it worked. Today we're joined by Dr. Charles McClure, an assistant professor of accounting at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Charlie received a PhD in accounting from Stanford in 2018 and researches capital markets, governance, including executive compensation and financial reporting with a focus on how accounting standards affect firm performance. All right, so Charlie, welcome.
2: Hi, great to be here.
0: Good to have you. So, Charlie, what made you think of this
1: idea, sort of what was the genesis? And talk a little bit about about what we do, what our research question is, and why you thought it might be important.
2: You know, I have an interest in executive compensation. And so thinking about the policy implication of, can you actually use tax policy to induce these, what some people would think is, you know, it's really positive changes within companies. You know, the paper that we wrote is looking at, okay, if you remove this uh, exception so that you now put salary and performance-based compensation on a level playing field, because prior to that, firms would be, you know, would have this incentive to boost the performance pay relative to salary because it was tax deductible above a million dollars. And so if you, you know, kind of eliminated this exception, would firms actually respond to that or would they just view this as a cost of doing business in this new regime? We don't find much of anything happening in this paper.
1: So I like the way that you said level the playing field, because when you look at the House report, you know, the committee said that we think that this tax favored status that we've been given to performance based compensation since 1993 has led to some distortions. So we're going to take that tax benefit away and see if that magically fixes what they call, quote, perverse consequences resulting from the focus of executives and businesses on quarterly results rather than the long term success of the company. The idea there being. We know we often give CEOs quarterly earnings targets to meet to get that performance based pay. And so, you know, maybe we've induced maybe the tax law has induced a little bit of myopia that we'd like to get rid of.
0: It is interesting, though, I guess, that that Congress um, thinks that tax law has such a big impact on corporations. We reviewed the literature and it's pretty Mixed. firework work finds some effects in some places, but across the board, there isn't this big smoking gun that this exception actually led to this huge increase. Um, But that's the way Congress has interpreted it. And so the the fix is to change the law.
1: Exactly. And so, Charlie, since you are interested in executive comp, Lisa and I have touched on this a bit in prior episodes, but can you talk about some of the non-tax reasons why companies like performance-based pay, particularly stock options and restricted stock, stock stock-based compensation, other than tax reasons, why would a company award lots of that to their executives?
2: Well, I think if you read a lot of the proxy statements, uh, companies will say that they give performance-based pay because um, it allows executives to share on the upside. So you align the incentives of what the executives have with the shareholders. So if the stock price goes up, the executive gets paid out. And if the stock price doesn't go up, the options end up being worthless, you know, that the stock based pay is going to go down. And so that's the big reason, but there's also other reasons for why it might be useful, you know, on on one hand if you give a stock options, which is really big in tech world, you know, it's cashless. And so one of the big benefits is that you're not having to expend a lot of cash to pay these executives because they do make a lot of money, rather you're giving them, you know, pieces of the pie. You're just going to dilute shareholders in the long term but not actually have to use your cash. And in certain industries and in certain firms, uh, that ability can be particularly valuable.
1: So, Lisa, I think you're exactly right that this could be an example of Congress thinking that maybe this part of their job setting the tax law is a little bit more important, a little bit more influential than it actually is in reality. So, that's what we were looking at with this paper. And to to be very specific, we weren't, this was kind of a unique paper because we weren't testing our own hypothesis. We weren't really predicting something one way or another. Our objective was to test Congress's success in achieving their stated goal of shifting executive compensation away from performance-based pay, particularly stock, and back to more fixed pay and salary.
0: One thing that's a little bit difficult uh, as researchers, though, is um, if we have a hypothesis for compensation going up or compensation going down, um, there are pretty clear um, protocols around how we go about testing that and what level of confidence we have that a result is, yes, it went up. In this case, uh, given that we have uh, basically no results anywhere, and we can talk more about that, um, it, it becomes pretty difficult to, to, to try to convince people that there really is no result there, given the way we typically set up our tests in using the scientific method.
2: Yeah, and I think that's always a challenge when you have a null result paper, right? Because you you're testing two things simultaneously. You're testing, you know, is the economic forces not really there? And is your data good enough to actually be able to test that? You have this dual hypothesis problem.
1: So one thing that was actually nice for us uh, in this uh, situation was that Congress's intention should have produced a very specific pattern of results. So they called for a shift away from performance-based compensation. So we should have seen cash bonuses and stock compensation decline. And when you do that, when you take risky compensation away from an executive, you should have to compensate them less overall. So we should have seen three things. We should have seen a reduction in performance pay, an increase in salary, and then a decrease in total compensation. So that was one thing that was sort of nice about um, our setting and allowed us to kind of help circumvent some of these challenges that Lisa's talking about, um, because it turns out that we actually did see some statistically significant effects in
0: the wrong direction. So let's talk a little bit about what our exact tests were.
2: Yeah, so one of the nice things that we do in our paper is the rule came into effect for firms that began their tax years starting on January 1st, 2018. But obviously, firms can elect when their fiscal years occur. And so what we did is we tried to exploit that that variation that firms have to compare firms for which their fiscal year 2018 was affected by the TCJA to firms that had fiscal years of 2018 Um, that weren't affected because maybe they started on December 1st of 2017. And so that allowed us to compare two firms in the same fiscal year uh, that, you know, share lots of similar characteristics where the only, hopefully the only variation will be along the dimension of whether or not the 162 exemption um, had been repealed. And so that was really nice because it allowed us to get a little bit more at, you know, can we get at this causation? Is the TCJA actually causing changes or lack thereof in executive compensation.
0: And so a nice thing about explaining that variation in the beginning of firms' uh, fiscal years is that that kind of forced us to have a pretty short window to look at how firms uh, might be responding to the law change. And that's nice generally when you're trying to look at a causal effect because a shorter window provides fewer opportunities for other events happening that could simultaneously be uh, causing the effect that you're observing and not the actual law change that you're trying to study. Um, But there's a downside to that short window as well. Yeah, that's
1: right. So as you might imagine, it might take a little bit of time for firms to actually make changes in response to the TCJA. And the other little tricky thing is that Congress loves acronyms and grandfathering provisions. So we've seen this many times before when Congress wants to change a rule. They don't want to pull the rug out from underneath taxpayers. And so they will allow them to continue operating under the old rules, at least for some certain period of time. And the grandfathering provision with this particular tax law change was pretty complicated. Um, We had to wait, I think, over eight months for the regulations to be finalized until taxpayers actually knew what was going to happen. So it could have been a little bit that companies were kind of just taking a wait and see approach, Um, to figure out what those final regulations were going to look like before making any changes. So to address those issues, what we did was looked at more years after the passage of the TCJA. I believe we went all the way through 2020. And even bringing in that 2020 year, we still don't see the reduction in total compensation or performance pay that we would have expected had the TCJA done what it was supposed to do.
0: But because it's difficult to convince people that a no result really is a no result, we basically bent over backwards trying to think okay, where are we most likely to find a result? And if we narrow our sample down to where we most expect firms to respond and we still don't see a result, then maybe that gives us a little more uh, confidence that no really firms were not responding to the tax law change. So Charlie, talk a little bit about some of these tests that that we did.
2: Yes. In the first place we looked was new CEOs, right? These new CEOs that come into office in 2018, by definition, are going to have new contracts. And even when we look at these new CEOs, we don't find an effect. The other uh, set of firms that we looked at where we might be able to find something are financially constrained firms. So these are firms that Maybe they're not doing particularly well. And so they'd like to save on their taxes by uh, cutting executive pay, shifting more towards salary and fixed pay um, to avoid you know, having to get these big, big uh, payouts for performance-based pay. And again, in that case, we don't find it an effect either.
1: The other challenge that we faced and really that so many researchers trying to examine the effects of the TCJA faced is that. Congress never cuts academics any slack, and they don't ever change one thing at a time, right? This was a massive tax overhaul. And um, what that meant is that this 162M provision wasn't the only thing that was modified. So one of the challenges that we had was convincing reviewers and readers that the no change that we find is really that the, you know, 162M change wasn't effective. Not that the 162M change alone was perfectly effective, but all of these other confounding changes were driving our results. So, um, Lisa, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the tests that we did? Charlie, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the tests that we did to to address that challenge?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to talk about that. So, you know, we looked at a subsample of firms where we thought the other effects of the TCGA would be minimized. So we looked at domestic firms, you know, firms without any foreign profits, without NOL carry forwards, and those that were below the interest expense limitation, you know, because these are the firms that are least likely to be affected by other components of the TCGA. And even in this small subsample of firms, we still didn't find an effect.
1: So we found nothing, Question to my co-authors that I don't think we've ever really had this conversation.
0: And so you're doing it now while we're recording?
1: Publicly. Yeah. Absolutely. Good idea. Um, were you all surprised?
2: I wasn't. I, I guess if you think about what a lot of boards of directors think about, I don't think taxes come to the front of their mind. And these are large companies and a couple million dollars in taxes are are not that big of a deal for, for a lot of these companies. So I wasn't too surprised that we didn't find anything. Um, but- I kept an open mind when we started. I mean, I would have loved to have seen that some of the policy w- was doing as as expected, but I, I didn't I didn't have my hopes up. I wasn't holding my breath.
0: Yeah, I think I was also pretty agnostic about it. If anything, what had me expecting the result was how confident Congress seemed that there should be an effect.
1: I think I agree with um, pieces of what both of you are saying. I did not expect an on average effect for sure. But I did think that when we started looking within subsamples of firms, we were going to find something somewhere. Because although I agree with Charlie that I think the average board is not thinking about taxes, I thought that there was at least some segment of the population out there that would take taxes into consideration just because tax costs are a thing. They're real. So I was surprised that we got nothing, nada, zip, zilch across, like, what did we run? 65, 70 tests. All right takeaways?
2: Maybe one of the big takeaways from this is using taxes to set compensation policies uh, probably isn't that effective. There's obviously a lot of other uh, proposals out there right now, with like Bernie Sanders uh, linking corporate taxes based on CEO pay ratios. Certain municipalities considering, you know, having extra taxes um, on CEO compensation. What what our paper says is that. You know, while these might be well-intentioned policy recommendations, they're unlikely to have a meaningful effect for these companies.
0: Okay. So a different type of takeaway. Charlie, what are your takeaways from working with me and B? Number one, don't work with us anymore.
2: (laughs) No, I I, I enjoyed, I I really enjoyed working with with both of you and I I learned a lot. We'll have
0: you on the podcast again. You don't have to butter (laughs) us up, (laughs) to be honest. The the check is in the mail. (laughs) yeah. (laughs)
2: No, it, it was really it was really great to, to work with both of you. I mean, because I think we each had our own our own skills that we could bring to the table. And I thought there were some nice complementarities uh, across the three of us. So I enjoyed working with you guys and I hope that we'd be able to to do so again in the future.
1: I'm confident that this is not the last dumb thing Congress will attempt to do to executive <laughs> compensation. So I, 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 too, am hopeful that we will have uh, future opportunities for collaboration. for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm going to start with the obvious good thing about this episode.
0: Okay. Charlie. Charlie.
1: Thank you, Charlie, for letting us torture you as a guest. For Actually letting us torture you for years <laughs> yeah. as a co-author. Years. Mm-hmm. And then as a
0: guest he, on the podcast. He's a good sport about it, though. Definitely. I've got one. Um, the old rules based on SEC disclosure requirements, meaning they only apply to publicly traded companies... Um, that that didn't seem like the best. I didn't I don't I don't like the old rules. So changing them was probably a good idea.
1: Okay, so to the bad, Batman. Bring it. All right, so I'm going to say something bad here and I think that that is the inconsistency, the inconsistency in the tax policy. So again, learning about the Mm-hmm. Reason behind the old rules that we didn't have enough performance pay. So we're gonna incentivize it. And now we have too much performance pay. So we're gonna disincentivize it. All I could think of was the dinner party episode of the office with Michael talking about getting a vasectomy <laughs> and then having the vasectomy flip flop, flip, flop, flip, flop, snip, snap, snip, snap, snip, snap. That's that's how I feel about executive compensation, the taxation of executive compensation. It's
0: just a, it, the the original 162M exception they put in place worked too well. They were too uh, good at their job. Congress just like nailed it. If right? I had a dollar for every
1: time someone claimed Congress was too good at their job, <laughs> I'd still be standing in front of the vending machine without
0: my animal crackers. <laughs> Shall we turn to the ugly? Yeah, let's turn to the ugly. Let's do it. I mean, the ugly is... It's not something that you and I love to say, although we've said it before. It's that you can't always use tax policy to fix things. It just doesn't always work. I 100%
1: agree with that. And I'm going to push it a step further and say that this is an area where I think we can see that tax policy is not super effective yet. Mm. And yet politicians and policymakers seem to want to keep doubling down on this notion that it's going to be. So how would you fix things? You know, I think it's a struggle, but the way I'm starting to think about these excise taxes like we are seeing in the city of Portland and in San Francisco, like Bernie Sanders has put out uh, as ideas before, I'm almost thinking of it like a sin tax, like paying your executive a lot is now a sin. It's a legal behavior that we're trying to discourage. Mm. And we know that sin taxes don't tend to work all that well, right? we're trying to curb excessive CEO pay, income inequality is becoming a big issue. Absolutely. Maybe instead of trying to put pressure at the top, we need to do something to elevate the bottom. Maybe Congress could try some non-tax policy to raise minimum wages, to raise that pay that we're giving to the median worker. Maybe that would be a more effective way to curb income inequality and really just to make sure that people have a standard of living. How How would you fix it?
0: So here's here's a question for you. Put, put inequality aside for a second. What is so wrong with paying CEOs a market price?
1: I personally don't think there is anything wrong with
0: it. I do get upset about inequality.
1: You can fix that at either end. And I think the politicians especially a lot of the Democrats always want to focus on changing what's happening at the upper end. Yeah. We can leave the high paid executives alone, let them get the wage that the market says they quote unquote deserve and spend our time focusing on more impactful strategies that can help the lower end of the distribution.
0: But we can use tax policy. We can tax people at the higher end. The trick is you'd have to then use those tax revenues to reallocate towards people at the low end. And that's the piece that I think is missing from this whole conversation by Congress of 162M. They've focused on taxing the upper end to try to change how much they're paid. Mm -hmm. If we don't care about how much they're paid and all we care about inequality, that's the wrong thing to focus Mm -hmm. on. Absolutely. Well said. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for today.
1: Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.